provide a definition for the word woman. Can I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't. You can't? Not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition? Senator, in my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, people make arguments, and I look at the right. law, and I decide. Well, the fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. Well, I well, I wouldn't say I'm a biologist, but I am a scientist. And it doesn't take a lot to define a woman. But that's not why we're here. Welcome to the Living Brightly podcast with Elaine Cross. And today we're going to talk about what is a father? Can you define a father? Can you give me a definition of a father? We're going to look at what a father is, what a father does, the father's purpose, the father's place in society, and what his place in society should be. If you find value in what you hear on the Living Brightly podcast, I'd ask that you tell others about it and that you would support the value for value that I have established here. I put value into creating these podcasts. I work hard. I spend a lot of time, I do a lot of diligence, and then I share it with you freely. You consume it freely. All I ask is that if you consume it, if you listen, that you share, and then you support by producing, by sharing some of your time, talent, or treasure. But for now, let's define what is a father. Thanks for joining me. We have elected to the Supreme Court by the president's clear wishes and clear definition, a black woman. Now, in 65, both 1865 and 1965, great lengths in this country were gone to establish the fact that all men, all people are created equal, created by the king of the universe, the creator of all things seen and unseen, equal people. Everyone is equal. Martin Luther King in 1965 had an impassioned speech about having people judged by the content of their character, not simply their appearance. And I would add to that their gender. I'm not going to deny that the Democrats in the South did horrific things to the blacks for that hundred years between 1865 and 1965. We're not going to get into an American history lesson here today. I'm just going to point out that I admit there were great, egregious, horrific things that happened to people because of the color of their skin and because they lived in the South. And I'm not saying it didn't happen in the North, but it certainly was not as prevalent and not as accepted. But what is a father? And what does a father have to say in all this? So in the 1750s, again, remember, the United States was established in 1776. So roughly 20 years before the United States declared independence, William Wilberforce, a politician in Great Britain, was extremely convicted by his Christian faith that slavery was wrong. Now he knew slavery was virtually worldwide. It was a typical means of control, a typical means of running a country. And based on his Christian faith and studying the scriptures, he determined that it was wrong. He also determined that he was in a position because he had a voice and he happened to be in the position of power being a politician, that he could not step away from that, but step into that fight. And I've already discussed on this podcast how at the establishment of the Constitution, they debated the idea of slavery, only they needed the southern states to create the union to establish this country 
to start moving forward. So they did not put the right to life, liberty and property, which is what they wanted, because they didn't want to codify people as chattel, which is what the South would say they had done. So it was the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They fully believed that they would fight that fight to eliminate slavery. They did not expect it to take 100 years, but it did. And unfortunately, it took another 100 years before the blacks really were accepted in all the states of the Union as equal participants in the law, in the governance, in everything. Now, there was a brief window of time following the Civil War when blacks were elected to office. The first black representative came from Mississippi. That's phenomenal. So following the Civil War in 1865, the U.S. House and Senate passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. These were all about equality. These were all about establishing, quantifying, creating rules and laws that would protect all citizens, including especially the blacks and previous slaves. And the United States government set aside like 400,000 acres or 40,000 acres or some huge amount of land that they had taken from the slave owner plantations to give to the blacks and mules that were left over from the war, which is where the 40 acres and a mule came from. Those were bounty, really, from the war, the Civil War, that freed the slaves. So they confiscated all the land of the plantation owners that had slaves with the intent of dividing that land up and giving it to the blacks. But then the Democrats, when they took over control and gave it back to the plantation owners. So I understand why blacks today are like, what happened to our 40 acres and a mule? Well, you got it, but then they took it. And frankly, you should sue and get it back with loss of rights and loss of wealth. Back to topic... So in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was given. The Civil War is raging. 1865, the war is over, and they passed the 13th Amendment, making slavery illegal. In 68, they passed the 14th Amendment, which grants citizenship to everybody who was a slave, because they were saying they weren't citizens, they weren't real people. So you can't deprive their life, liberty, property without due process. And unfortunately, that has been really manipulated, but we're not going to get into that. And it literally says Congress can pass laws to safeguard this. But they didn't really follow up on that, did they? And then in 1870 was the 15th Amendment and the black voting rights that basically said it's illegal to prevent them from voting. They have full rights. They're full citizens. Every black man can vote as as well as every white man. And Hiram Rhodes Revels was the first black senator that was elected from Mississippi in 1870, the same year as the the ratification of the 15th Amendment. Following the election of black men to the House of Representatives and the Senate, the Democrats in the South created the Jim Crow laws, the voting rules, and establishing the, the worth of a black man. Now, the 15th Amendment was about having the right to vote, But in the South, in the states, they manipulated that into it was only three-sevenths or three-fifths of a vote or something. I don't know how you even do the math. But that festered and boiled and bubbled. The Democrats in the South could not handle that. They could not stomach that. So they created a bunch of laws and a bunch of rules to sequester and to limit the impact and the voice of the Blacks. And shortly after the turn of the century, In the Great Depression, the Democrats came up with another scheme, and that scheme was socialism. It was a very mild form of socialism, but when you deal with the extensive poverty and the rippling problems that came from the Great Depression, where people were literally starving in the streets, the, the Great New Deal seemed like a great solution. The Democrats used that as a way to almost buy the black vote with what I term free stuff. And that shifted a lot of the vote in the black community from the Republicans to the Democrats, because the Republicans are the party of Lincoln. They're the party that freed the slaves. They're the party that fought for the 
1965 Civil Rights Act. I mean, they, they have been a force for equality for years. But lies are pernicious. They are manipulated in such a way that you want to believe them. And the reason I bring all this history up, the reason I am giving you this short little rundown is that it was through those socialist programs, Social Security, that led about 30 years later to the New Deal and with that Medicare, Medicaid. And Medicare, Medicaid was designed to help fill and bridge the gap for the poor seniors or disabled to help cover their medical and some basic human needs. So this was that safety net, a safety net to protect those who did not have enough in reserve to support themselves. Now, when they first signed the Social Security Act, the average lifespan was 60.7 years. So let's just say 60 years and seven months, it's a little bit more than that, but or maybe a little less than that, close enough, not 61 years. The average lifespan was less than 61 years. The retirement age for Social Security was 65. 1965, it has reached this tipping point for the second civil rights movement. And out of the second civil rights movement, and this came about with some major lawsuits, Brown versus Board of Education, the Plessy v. Ferguson case was the one that separate is not equal, even though they had initially said separate but equal. Now it's separate is not equal. Andrew Johnson is the one who took the land and gave it back to the slave owners. This is horrific. But in the process of this, one of the hugest points of the slave mentality, of the slave process, of holding people under control, is that they were in control of whether you could be married or not be married, and whether those children would be part of a family unit. Oftentimes, if it was a boy, they would sell the boy off, or some slave owners looked at intact families as a way to keep them together. Other slave owners and I would say more in the majority, felt like an intact family, slave family, was a threat to maintaining stability on the plantation. So they would divide families up. They would intentionally allow them to have two or three kids because that was more resources, that was more chattel. And then they would break the families up and send them away, or they would sell the children off. And I mention that because we're talking about what is a father and this spirit of slavery from a Christian perspective is a fatherless home. In 1965, we have this second civil rights movement, but we already had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. What could Congress do? So they took the Social Security Act, which was the safety net for the old and the disabled, and created more power in the federal government through the establishment of Medicare and Medicaid. I'm not saying these are bad things. Having a safety net is good. But whose responsibility is it to take care of the widows and the fatherless, the orphans? The widows and the orphans are us. That's our responsibility. Christians, the Judeo-Christian belief system in the Judeo-Christian camp, the Judeo-Christian ideology is that we are to take care of widows and orphans. And primarily, children are to take care of their parents if their parents need help. They're not to leave them to struggle on their own. Your parents help bring you into this world and raise you and protect you and got you to the point where you could be an adult, positive functioning member of society. And if at such point they cannot take care of themselves, the children are then in turn responsible to take care of their family. If their family is for some reason not blessed with children or the children die are unaware and some parents are just too stinking proud are unaware of their position, then it's the church's responsibility to help provide for them, to help take care of them. I'm not saying it should necessarily be a welfare based, you know, you just get it because you get it, but it might be. So in 1965, the government decided we would be your God. The government would be your God and the government would be your church and the government would be those hands that take care of you and protect you with the establishment of Medicare and Medicaid. Now, Medicare is medical. 
It's an insurance program that employees and employers pay into along with Social Security to help take care of you in your older age, although there are still deductibles and there are still costs and there are still fees involved. Medicaid, on the other hand, is more for the poor. And in 1965, one of the biggest arguments was there was not equal opportunity for blacks, especially in the South, where they had black water fountains and black entrances in the rear and black seating in the theaters and everything was segregated, black schools. And segregation is not equal and it's not right and it's not godly. So they gave on the segregation, but they got with the Medicaid because shortly after Medicare Medicaid was passed in 1965, poor communities were targeted to get this help, to take advantage of these new dollars that were there to take care of you and to help protect you and to fill in the gap. But there was one major stipulation, and I don't know if you're aware of this. And it sounds good from one perspective, but it is evil. It's as evil as the Medicare system itself. Because first and foremost, the Medicare system puts the government in the position of your God. It's who you look to for your food, your housing, your protection, all of that. But it also demanded that there would be no men in the home. Married families have a very, very hard threshold to overcome to get any kind of Medicaid assistance. So like the slaves back in the 1700s, The men were now disposable. In fact, they were toxic. They would have Medicaid investigators go through the neighborhood to check and see if any men lived in the homes where the people were getting Medicaid benefits. And they literally would go through closets. They would interview the children apart from the mother. And they would ask them, have you seen your daddy? Is your dad around? Has your dad been here? Is your dad staying here? Does your dad spend the night? If the children responded in the affirmative to any of those, the family would be stripped of their Medicaid benefits. Getting off of Medicaid is extremely hard because it does make life a whole lot easier when you don't have money to feed your kids and you can't afford the rent or your electricity is getting shut off. This was the beginning. I shouldn't even say the beginning. This was the next step in our enemy plan to destroy America. You know, the United States of America has been a beacon of hope for the whole world. It has changed the makeup of the whole world. So our enemy hates it. And our enemy has taken over other countries and many other countries that have come through socialism, communism, fascism, Nazism, Stalinism, whatever you want to call it, all those things, all those totalitarian, dictatorial type governments have failed because we were born for freedom. We were born for light, for choice, free choice. But when the government says that your choice to have a father in the home is unacceptable and the Christians don't stand up and say, no, we take care of our own. We have organizations. We'll work together to take care of our widows and our fatherless and those who are starving and those who are in need of work. But they didn't. And they're not. Yes, there are lots of organizations, and right now the pregnancy centers are under huge attack by the left because with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, they finally figured out there's more pregnancy centers than there are abortion clinics right now. And they're like, oh my gosh, that can't happen. And the fact that pregnancy centers have saved 800,000 children or something over the, the years that they've been in business, which is great. But where do these children go? Unfortunately, the majority of children born today are born into a single parent home where there is a mom and there is no dad. And there has been study after study after study that has shown the value, the importance, the necessity of a father in the home. For this reason, a man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife. The home begins with the husband and the wife. When that family unit is blessed with a child, it changes. A child changes everything. There is no question about it. The love, the passion, the stress, the expense is incredible. It's, it's undescribable. Well, you can describe it. 
but you can't really put it into words. You can't narrow it down to the limit of language because it's such a spiritual experience. Our society has so expelled men, especially white men, but black men, you're in the target now too, toxic masculinity and whatever they can think of to make men look bad. They do. Now I remember TV shows, movies in the 50s, 60s, only because I watch reruns. There were several that treated the mom as a dimwit or less intelligent or less bright, but she always had at least some enduring feature. You know, she took care of the kids or she kept the house clean or she cooked, whatever. Uh, I keep thinking of Lucille Ball, who, who managed to mess all those things up, which made her enduring because, you know, the best way to comedy is to make fun of reality. And women are no more natural at cleaning homes or cooking than a man is. But traditionally, the, the mother, the wife stayed home, took care of the home, took care of the children, took care of the meals, took care of the day-to-day necessities. If the plumbing broke, she called the plumber. And by her being home, it created a home and an environment where the man was confident to go out and slay the dragons in his world, whether that was to fix cars or to build buildings. He went to work confident. He went to work proud. He went to work knowing that he was doing this for not just himself, but his family and not just his family, but his family's family, his children, his grandchildren, his great grandchildren. He was doing something for his community and for his society because he had a little piece of that in his own home. And now we have so many children born out of wedlock. And unfortunately, in the black community, it's high, but the white community is not any better. Just like the divorce rate is no better in the Christian home than it is in the secular home. That's on us. And we need our men to be men. We need our fathers to be in the home. We need our fathers to be engaged, active, not just on the weekend. There's something that happens in a child when he or she watches the husband-wife relationship. This is where the children learn how to be a man or a woman. This is their first experience with conflict resolution, budgeting, struggles, and successes. How do we celebrate? How do we communicate? How do we live this journey of life together? How do we worship? How do we pray? How do we learn about this God who cares for us? protects us, provides for us. What is a father? If we think of Father God, what does Father God do for us? What does he promise us? He'll take care of us. He'll provide for us. He'll protect us. Whether women want to admit it or not, and most will, most women will admit. Or you could just look around at the next time you're at a party Virtually all women are either the same height or slightly shorter than their husband. Women look to their husbands, wives look to their husbands as someone to protect them, someone to provide for them, someone to help carry the heavy load. That's what we look to God to do. And I know a lot of us have issues with God because we have issues with our father. It's easy to see or justify the role of a father for different stages of life. Having a father at home when the child is young helps establish their brain and their perspective on the world, given the the husband-wife relationship and their relationship with their father. Does he tuck you in once a week? I get it if he can't do it every night. Maybe he does it every night. Maybe he does it once a month. But the father that stops and prays with their child, so powerful. This is one thing I love about my Jewish friends, the idea of Sabbath and many of them that I talk to, so I can't say that all, but many of them that I talk to bless their children every Sabbath. So Friday night, the family gathers for a meal. The father literally touches their child and blesses them. Now, maybe the prayer is wrote, it's pre-written and it's repeated exactly the same every week. Maybe it's not. But either way, the child is hearing their father's voice, bless them, encourage them. And they immediately hear a slightly different blessing for the girls than the boys, because girls and boys are different. God created them different. 
and you need to respect them differently. It's the father that instills the respect and the honor for the women in the home, in the boys of the home. It is the father who teaches the daughter her value and her worth outside of what the world might tell her. Fathers give you your identity and from your identity comes your value, your purpose, your outlook. I know this is heavy. Let's, I just want to take a break here and remind you that this is a value for value podcast. And if you're getting value from this, I pray that you would just stick with me and listen to the end. This is so important. If you like it, share it. But if you get value from it, from my time, talent and treasure, please give some of your time, talent and treasure by heading over to elainecross.com, E-L-A-Y-N-E, cross as in Jesus died on the cross.com and make a donation. Whatever value you think it's worth to you, you decide. All right, let's continue. Think about going to a company Christmas party with your spouse. So you enter the room and it's full of people and you know very little bit about them. You might think, am I dressed appropriately? You know, what's going on? But you know that this is something that's associated with your spouse's employment. What are your expectations? How are you going to behave? What might you be able to learn or glean to support your spouse? Now, outgoing people, they're going to think, woohoo, this is so great. I get to meet new people. I get to mingle. I get to have this opportunity to talk to people, create more friends. There's this excitement and there's energy that just builds in them. I can't wait. But those introverts (laughs) who have very little interest in this kind of event are like, oh my gosh, I have to go. Do I have to go? How long do I have to stay? Can we just can I give you a nod or pull on my ear or have a, a code word to tell you I've got to get out of here? They are not really looking forward to it. <laughs> but you're the plus one, right? You're not really going for yourself. You're going for your spouse. And you're going because your spouse invited you, but more importantly, because you want to support your spouse and encourage your spouse. You don't know anything about the people that are there except they too are in some way associated with this company. But does that say who you are? Yeah, you think about meeting somebody, you know, oh, I'm, I'm Chuck's wife, or I'm Deborah's husband, or my wife works in accounting, or my husband's the mailman who brings the mail around, works in the mailroom, whatever. Does that say who you are? What you do? How you describe yourself? Are you tall, short? heavy, thin? What's your skin color, your hair color? Do you wear glasses? Do you have gray hair or no hair? We don't want to be judged by that. We don't even want that to define us. When we think about our identity, we think about what do you do? What, how do you work? How do you raise money? How do you make money? How long have you been married? Do you have any children? These are all generalities that don't really mean a lot in the big scheme of things, but they all tell a slight little story of maybe how you've experienced life. Some of the other ones that you wouldn't dare asking, are you wealthy? Are you poor? You're not gonna go to a Christmas party and ask those questions. And yet we wonder, and some people you can tell are driven by those kind of questions. They look at their attire, they look at their behavior, And they make grand assumptions based on those two things. Your identity is not what you do. It's not in what you look like. It's not your heritage or the native land that your people came from. You know, um, I know when I was a kid, I used to talk about my Irish heritage and how great that was. Well, I'm an American and the Irish in my family came over in like the 1700s. (sighs) (laughs) I'm pretty much an American. And that's the beauty of America is that we're not hyphenated, we're blended. And we celebrate those unique things that our culture may have brought with us. We may, our parents brought with us from their parents and passed it down through the years, special foods or special celebrations. 
But who you are depends on what you believe. And who you are, your identity really comes from your father. Traditionally, when a husband and wife get married, the woman takes the husband's name. And even if the woman does not take the husband's name, she may hyphenate her name and add it on. But the children born are almost always, and I don't hardly know any except maybe movie stars who just name their kids, I don't know, Crystal Blue Sky or something. Um, (laughs) The surname, your last name in the United States anyway, and this is, this is true in other countries, is your father's name. I know in China, they get the family name and they don't change it when they get married so that you can always know the lineage of that person. But still, the children get the father's name. The children get the identity of the father. And when children are born with a non-active father in the home, what name do they get? Often, it's up to the mother. The mother may give them the father's name. The mother will probably give them her own name. And that makes you disconnected from half of who you are. Children need a father to be whole. We look at mothers and their caretakers. They do most of the communication. They give you the hugs and the comfort. But fathers are irreplaceable. A man's perspective on the world is so unique from a woman's. A woman can't do it. And I know there are some women who are single parents and the children give them gifts on Father's Day because they were the mother and the father. But the reality is, it's not good for society for men to not be involved in their children's life. And men need to be involved in their children's life. Dads, if you have a child, you need to be involved in that child's life. Frankly, you should be married to the mother, but I know for some, that's just not going to happen. And for you young men, you need to seriously think about this because when you bring a child into this world, you need to be involved in the process. I have long, long said that abortion is not just a women's issue because without the father, there would be no child. And the father should have just as many rights as to whether that child comes into the world or not. Accidents happen. Women lie. I know many stories of women who say they're pregnant to try and get the man to marry them. And if the man refuses, that is often when she might pursue abortion. Because at that point, the baby's inconvenient. The baby was only convenient if I could get a man. Men, this is your responsibility. Because women are going to throw themselves at you. It's been happening. You know it. And you need to decide as a believer at what point you want to be a father. Because when you're a father, the child's view of the world is dependent on you. Oh, that's a heavy responsibility. It is, because that's what a father is. A father gives identity to his children. A unique, personal identity. We are created in our mother's womb with the help of God, but it would never happen without the father. You were carefully placed by God in the world to be here to push back against the chaos and to be a positive beacon of light for those around you. Now, maybe your father wasn't engaged in your life. Maybe your father didn't know you even existed or believed the lie that your mom could handle it all on her own or stayed away because tension between he and she were such that it was hard, or he got lazy. When I was divorced, I always knew when my ex had a girlfriend because the kids wouldn't see him for months on end, unless the girlfriend was serious. And then she would tell him, hey, you haven't seen your kids, you need to go see your kids. Women, that's your job. Mothers, you carry a child for nine months. You give birth to a child. You work very, very hard to bring that child into the world. And you have such an intimate, natural connection, a spiritual connection with your children that again, it's, it goes beyond words. The father is an observer. You cannot expect the father to feel and experience what you experience because it's not happening to his body. He's watching. He's amazed. 
loves to see the baby kick or feel the baby kick, but it's all from an outside perspective. It's not the same as yours. So when you give birth to that child, one of the mother's greatest responsibilities is to encourage and facilitate a bond between that child and that father. And too many times women get in the way. They have expectations that the father should just know things. Well, you know, it's called a mom's instinct for a reason. And they're not moms, they're dads. And they see the world differently. They solve problems differently. They approach children differently. And yes, those little girls get wrapped around their finger. You know why? Because she reminds him of you. That's a love you can't and don't want to break. But it does need to be put in perspective. You can spoil a child, but you can't drown them in love. Love is not spoiling. You can't love a child too much. A child needs his father, her father, to learn who they are, to learn the justice and righteousness required of this life as a believer. Women are very attuned to the emotional needs of a child. But the father is very attuned to the need for a child to learn justice, righteousness. And I'm not saying that all moms are pushovers, but they definitely look at things differently. And if you're only ever exposed to one side, you're missing out. And it will impact your interpersonal relationships with the opposite sex until you can figure and work through who you really are, who God created you to be who God wants you to be, and how the world works. Can't imagine what it's like to not have a father in the home. But I know how hard it was as a single parent, knowing the role of a father and not having one there. And I saw the difference in my children after I got married a second time, and they lived with a father figure in the home. It's important. It's valuable. There's been scientific studies to stipulate that. Child development is strongly dependent on the presence of a father in the home because God made us different, male and female, and a female can't do what a man is supposed to do because when God created the earth and God created man, male and female, he created them. He made man and took woman from man. And when you get married, the two become one flesh. It's two parts of a whole two sides of a coin, the yin and the yang, however you want to put it. Our country is desperately in need of fathers. Children who don't have fathers in the home, widows, young widows, need a father. There are some organizations to help fill that gap. And I appreciate that they call it Big Brothers, Big Sisters. That's one of the biggest ones. Because it's not the same as a committed marriage relationship. What is a father? A father is not a sperm donor. A father is not an unnecessary portion of an equation that results in a child. A father is not a every other weekend visitor or place to go. A father is a necessary, invaluable, I mean, you can't put a price tag on this, avenue to know who you are who God created you to be, why you are here, how to live justly, how to live righteously, how to treat members of the opposite sex, how to relate to members of the same sex, interpersonal relationships, conflict resolution, to provide, to protect, to encourage, to hold up. You can't just talk about it. You have to experience it. And there are so many people in therapy today who are dealing with these issues because they didn't learn them at home. Society is literally screaming for fathers to take their place, to push back against this craziness, to be godly men like William Wilberforce, who said, I've studied the scripture and slavery is wrong. Well, I'm telling you, 
you don't have to study scripture to know children need a father. But if you study scripture, the most stunning revelation of the value of a father in all of our lives is the fact that when Jesus's disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he said, pray in this way, our father, which art in heaven. If we're to relate to God as father, there is no doubt the value of a father in a life. Why do we pray? Yes, we go to moms when we we need comfort, when we need care, when we need our boo-boos tended. But we still go to daddy. Daddy, do you still love me? I screwed up. Daddy, will you protect me? I'm feeling threatened. Daddy, will you provide for me? I'm hungry. Well, you know what? Our country is hungry for spiritual truth. It's hungry for fathers. This country is need of protection of fathers. This country needs to be loved and shown the light of justice and righteousness that a father can bring. When I walk into churches, it's predominantly filled with women and old men. There's a problem. And when I go to churches that are all basic and there's men there and I think, good, good, it's a start. But until our preachers start preaching and our fathers start fighting, we're headed for a very, very dark time. When we can elect a woman or nominate and affirm a woman to the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and that woman who by definition was the required gender cannot define a woman, a man needs to stand up. And Ted Cruz did. Under Article 3 of the Constitution, uh, federal courts have jurisdiction over only cases and controversies, uh, which means under the Constitution it has to be an actual dispute that federal courts cannot simply issue advisory opinions on a question they may have a view on. And one component of Article 3 jurisdiction is the requirement of standing, that in order for a plaintiff to have standing to bring a case, that that plaintiff at least generally speaking, must have a real and concrete injury. Is is that right? That is correct. So, for example, that means that even if I might have a disagreement with some particular policy or some particular law, that I can't bring a case unless I am personally aggrieved by that policy or that law. For example, you're in my alma mater, Harvard is currently being sued for its explicit and, in my view, egregious policy of discriminating against Asian Americans. Even though I think that policy is egregious, I, as an individual plaintiff, could not bring a lawsuit challenging it because I am not Asian American. Is that right? If you brought a lawsuit, the court would have to evaluate whether you had an actual injury in order to be able to determine whether it had subject matter jurisdiction to hear the suit. But if I'm not in the class being discriminated against, then I don't have the ability to bring the lawsuit. Is that right? You'd have to have an actual injury. Certainly people, I think, who are in the class could claim that they had an injury for that purpose. So you're on the board of overseers of Harvard. If you're confirmed, do you intend to recuse from this lawsuit? That is my plan, Senator. Okay. We discussed yesterday how the standard for race discrimination was strict scrutiny. The court has laid out a different standard for gender discrimination. What is the constitutional standard that applies to to gender discrimination? Gender discrimination, the court has held intermediate scrutiny applies, which is that the government has to have an important interest and the tailoring doesn't have to be as narrow. Right. So yesterday, under questioning from Senator Blackburn, you told her that you couldn't define what a woman is, that you were not a biologist, which I think you're the only Supreme Court nominee in history who's been unable to answer the question, what is a woman? Let me ask you as a judge, how would you determine if a plaintiff had Article Three standing to challenge a gender-based rule, regulation, policy without being able to determine what a woman was? So, Senator, I know that I'm a woman. Let me ask, under the modern leftist sensibilities, if I decide right now that I'm a woman, then apparently I'm a woman. Does that mean that I would have Article Three standing to challenge a gender-based restriction? 
Senator, to the extent that you are asking me about um, who has the ability to bring lawsuits based on gender, those kinds of issues are working their way through the courts, and I'm not able to comment on them. Okay, if I can change my gender, if I can be a woman, and then an hour later, if I decide I'm not a woman anymore, I guess I would lose Article Three standing. Tell me, does that same principle apply to other protected characteristics? For example, I'm an Hispanic man. Could I decide I was an Asian man? Would I have the ability to be an Asian man and challenge Harvard's discrimination because I made that decision? If I came in and said, I have decided I identify as an Asian man. I would assess standing the way I assess other legal issues, which is to listen to the arguments made by the parties, consider the relevant precedents and the constitutional principles involved and make a determination. Now, Ted Cruz challenged her on this idea of association. Well, if I call myself an Asian man so I can get standing in this lawsuit, could I have standing? If I call myself an Asian man today and then go back to being a Latina man tomorrow, could I have standing? Which is true. Girls don't know their girls. Boys don't know their boys because they don't know what it means to be a girl, to be a boy, because we don't have any fathers telling them, showing them. And yes, this is a little bit of a, It may sound like a scolding, and maybe it is. And if it is, take it to God and say, God, what is she talking about? What do I need to do? Because he'll tell you. Because God doesn't need cowards. God needs champions. God doesn't need people to pray, do something, Lord, do something, Lord. Jesus finished it. He said so on the cross. It is finished. And he went and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. He did his job. Now you do yours. When fathers get engaged, when men step up and say, this is my child, I claim you, that sparks a light within a soul of a child that is hard to quench. We need you, dad. We need you, dads. We need you, men. We need you to step up and do your job because us women can't do it. And most godly women know it. And frankly, a lot of secular women know it. This has been a strong podcast today, but it's so important. The spirit of slavery is hovering like never before. It is demonic. It is evil. And we need to put it back in its place, which is not here in the United States. The United States is a beacon of light to the world a beacon of freedom, a beacon of truth. When somebody starts talking gibberish, they're redefining terms, or they're making a lie sound like a truth. And let me just be clear. They say things to justify a lie as if it's just a partial truth. Well, if it's a partial truth, it's a lie. If it's not truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, it's a lie. We need men to call it out as a lie. And I know you guys feel like you're pushed out of the acceptable societal discourse, but you're wrong and you need to stand up and speak out. And if your pastor starts talking gobbledygook that's not scriptural, call him out on it. Yes, I was born white. Yes, I'm sure that gives me some kind of advantage or privilege, but to whom much is given, much is expected. And I'm doing what I can to use that little bit of whatever it is that people think I have to be a light in this world. And every person who calls themselves a citizen of the United States, every person who was born in this land was born into privilege. Because there's not a person in the United States that doesn't have 50 times what anybody in any other country has. And I don't care if you are a homeless person on the street. Unfortunately, you could be addicted to meth And it's because of your privilege, because there's a lot of people in a lot of countries that would like to be addicted to meth. They just can't get it. So they writhe in pain all day. If you were born in the United States, you were born into privilege. You were born into the top, what, 1% of the world. Don't fool yourself when you look in the mirror. Do something with the privilege that you do have. We do have the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. We have these amendments, we have these freedoms that are built into the fabric of this culture. And if we don't start standing up for them, we're going to lose them all. 
And that's my appeal to you today. You do not have the privilege to sit on the sidelines and do nothing. Because not only is America's future in your hands, but the future of the whole world is in your hands. To whom much is given, much is expected. And men, if you call the United States your home, you have been given much. And we need to do much to right this ship, to stand up for truth, to speak truth, to call a lie a lie, and to be a father to the fatherless. You got this. I trust you. That's why I'm calling on you. Because us women, we can't do it alone. And frankly, we need you by our side. And we want you by our side. Actually, we want you in front of us. We want you taking the lead. We want you taking the hit. And we'll tend the wounds. (laughs) It's so important. So much is at stake. God isn't going to send a lightning bolt. He sent you. This is the Living Brightly podcast with Elaine Cross. Thank you, fathers, for being fathers. Thank you for hearing me and listening. If you got value from this, please head on over to elainecross.com. That's E-L-A-Y-N-E, cross, as in Jesus died on the cross, dot com. Make a donation, share it, tell people about it, and by golly, do something. Start small. Call somebody out when they start talking about 36 plus genders, something, anything, XY, XX. You got this. We need you. Thank you. Till next time.